Welcome to another Alive at Springwood podcast, brought to you by Springwood Presbyterian Churches, where we don't believe churches are buildings. Churches are people. Disciples of Jesus bound together in diversity by God's love, while pursuing faithfulness and vulnerability, celebration and lament, reading the Bible and prayer. May you be encouraged and God glorified by this edition. Remember the setting, Israel have been rescued from the promised land, uh, rescued from slavery, travelled through the wilderness, they're about to enter the promised land, and Moses is setting out the agenda for them of how they're to live when they go into the land, and how they worship him is going to be so important. In fact, that were the, they were the first, that was the item that's been addressed at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, which are sort of are the structure or the substructure lying underlying so much of Deuteronomy you shall have no other gods before me you shall not take a graven image an idol in order to worship me that's how God started his commandments and so here is really an expansion on that at the beginning of chapter 12 we hear that they're to get rid of all the stuff that the Canaanites used to worship their gods they're to destroy all that And they're not to go back to the old ways of worship. The Lord has rescued them to be his people. To love him and to serve him and to know him. He said to them, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the goal of the whole redemption. To bring them to be people who worship him. And so what they do in worship is really serious business. God does not treat it lightly. He certainly doesn't say to them, well, just do whatever seems good to you. Just make it up. Whatever feels good, you try it out. In fact, the most regulated part of their life is what they do when they come to the tabernacle and then later on the temple to worship him because that is at the very centre of their covenant relationship with the Lord who, has loved, who loves them and has saved them. And I think it stands in contrast to the way we often treat life. You know, it's very easy for us to treat our lives as if they've got diff- these different sections. We even talk about compartmentalising. So, you know, we've got work and we've got family and we've got our friendships and we've got things we do for entertainment. Maybe we've got some hobbies, got some community activities we're involved in. Oh, and church is there as well. And... Yeah, there's kind of connections between all of that, but it's not very tight and we actually can be quite different in one setting to what we are somewhere else. And we certainly live in a world where compartmentalising life is very easy, but that's not the way the Bible looks at it. Uh, if, if you want a biblical picture of it, it's concentric circles and I'm not sure what order all the circles are going to be in, but at the very centre is worshipping the Lord. That's what ties it all together and gives everything its shape and its direction and purpose. And worship is still a really serious business. Your daily Bible reading and prayer, whether it's something you do alone or something that you do with your family, that's actually the most important part of your day. Now, there's lots of other important things to do, 
But those minutes when you consciously turn yourself and turn your mind and your heart to the Lord and pray to him and listen to his word and hear him say to you again, I am your God, you are mine, and you say back, I'm your, you are my God, I am your servant, that, that's the axis that, around which your whole day turns. That's what sets the direction and purpose. And when we gather together like we are this evening as God's people, it's even more significant that this is what God saved us to be, to be his people, not just to be individuals who serve him, but to be of a community of those who love him and know him and do that together. And it's good to remember that because uh, for lots of us, we turn up at church almost every week. It's very routine. We're used to it. Lots of us have been doing it for years, perhaps grown up doing this. It's so normal. And that's a great habit to have, but it's good then to stop and remember, oh, actually what we're doing here is really important. It matters to God. It should matter to us. Uh, this is the moment as we gather together when heaven and earth come together. When we do here and now what God's people and God's angels do all the time in God's heavenly presence, worshipping him and glorifying him. This is when we know who we really are, that we're people that God has saved together to be his. This is when we tell him and tell one another about God's goodness and God's glory, when we hear his word. So what we're doing right now is really serious business. Uh, John Calvin, a 16th century reformer, wrote a really important treatise called The Necessity of the Reformation of the Church, in which he set out the priorities for the Reformation, the Reformation that, you know, such a huge event in history and the history of the church and the heritage that we come from. Uh, and when he wrote that document, the first item, the thing that was most important to him in the need for the Reformation of the church was not doctrine and it wasn't church government, it was worship. Uh, and fascinating, as he writes it, he does talk about what he calls the ceremonies of the church, the kind of, you know, what sort of practices you should have, what sort of prayers you should have. But he says that's not really what worship is about. What worship is about is knowing who God is and recognising your total dependence upon him and so praising him for all he's given you and, and relying on him in prayer for all you need. And that's what the church needs to do, he says. And that's the most important thing that needs to be reformed in the reformation of the church. Well, Deuteronomy 12 and 13 helps us to see why what we do in worship is so serious because it shows us the interplay between who we worship and how we worship. And I think you notice that in the flow through uh, chapter 12 and chapter 13. At the beginning of chapter 12, they're told to remove all the paraphernalia of the old ways of worship, destroy that, don't worship their way. At the end of, verse, end of the chapter, 
chapter 12, verse 30, they're told uh, n not to inquire after their, their, uh, about their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods? We will do the same. He says, you must not worship the Lord your God their way. Right, so first, chapter 12 is about taking the Canaanite ways of worshipping and using them to worship the God of Israel. And then in chapter 13, the risk is that they'll be led off to worship other gods. And of course, those two issues are connected. That's the first two commandments. You shall have no other God before me. And then do not worship the Lord with idols and graven images. Because how you worship should be determined by who you worship. And who you worship shapes how you worship. That's why the Lord is opposed to idols. Because an, an image can never represent to you the true God. He's the creator. He's not a creation. He is living and active and speaking and powerful. And no matter how magnificent the idol is that you've made or someone else has made, the point is somebody's made it. And it is dependent upon you or them to, to even exist and to be where it is and to look beautiful. And so every time that Israel set up an image and said, let's worship the Lord that way, it actually turns out it's not the Lord they're really worshipping. But of course, this passage has something way more shocking than that. At the end of chapter 12, Moses says, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way. Because in worshipping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things, things the Lord hates. It's horrible even to read, isn't it? They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifice to their gods. Now, what kind of God wants child sacrifice? It's a God who consumes. It's a God who feeds on humans. It's a God who hates humanity and, his, and their hatred has to be somehow satiated by taking the most vulnerable of human lives. And if you worship that way, you can't possibly be worshipping the true God of Israel because the true God gives life. Life's his gift and his blessing. He protects the most vulnerable. And so he hates child sacrifice and you can't worship him that way. But Moses says they do all kinds of detestable things. There's other detestable things they do as well. Let me just give you one example. Asherah, who's mentioned at the beginning of uh, chapter 12, the Asherah poles, she was a fertility goddess. And part of the way in which you worshipped her was ritual sex and temple prostitution. Uh, because she was promiscuous. That's the stories about her. And so if you want her blessing of fertility, that's what you did to worship her. And so her worship is a terrible corruption of the good gift of sex that God has given. That's for faithful marriage. And he is the God who is faithful. 
And so you can't worship Asherah style and actually worship the, the real God. The God you worship sets how you worship and how you worship will shape who it is you're really worshipping. And Deuteronomy protects both. It says, don't follow the ways or the gods of the people of the land. Now, the worship laws of Deuteronomy uh, don't apply directly to Christians. They've written about the tabernacle and then sacrifices. And, and they look forward to what Jesus will do when he comes in his to fulfill them when he comes in fulfillment, in, especially in his death. They set up a pattern that explains what he does. And you can actually see the difference in chapter 12 in the part of the chapter we jumped over, uh, where they're told they're only to worship in one place, which is the tabernacle, the tent, first of all, and then the temple later on. That's, only, that's the only place they're to worship the Lord. But that's not true with Jesus. Oh, actually, it is true with Jesus. But with Jesus, he is the only place where we worship. He's the true temple. We worship in him. And so there's no other way we can approach God. I mean, that's what Jesus says in John 2. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll build it again. They thought he was talking about the temple in Jerusalem, but he was actually talking about his body. His body is the true temple. He is the one to whom we come in order that we can approach God. But of course, you can then be in Christ anywhere in the world because he's ascended to heaven and he's poured out his spirit to people in nations around the world. And so our worship is not tied to a physical place the way their worship was. And so for us, Jesus is both the who of worship and the how of worship. Uh, we worship him, our Lord, and as we worship Jesus Christ, the Lord and Son, so we worship the Father and the Spirit who he give, whom he gives us. And we worship through him. He's the one who reveals God to us. He shows us the Father. He gives us the Spirit. He's the mediator, the sacrifice, the temple. Everything that we need for worship is given to us in and through him. So both the who and the how come together in Jesus. The Westminster Confession of Faith, the doctrinal statement of the Presbyterian Church, says it this way, I just think very neatly, religious worship is to be given to God, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit and to him alone and in the mediation of Christ alone. And of course the reformers, building on the heritage of the reformers, the confession and biblical Christianity since then, has said that statues and icons and sacraments and relics and holy water and candles and are not things that we need for worship. They're not part of our worship. They're not ways to worship. And if they're introduced as something that we are worshipping or using somehow to, in our worship, then they become distortions or distractions. Similarly, we don't need mediating priests. We, we don't need repeated sacrifices. 
or holy objects in order for us to know God and to have his blessing. And to start thinking we do actually takes us away from the completed work and the fullness of what Jesus has done. So genuine New Testament worship, Jesus' worship is actually very simple. It's what we're doing this evening. We hear God's word, which is focused on Jesus. We hear it read and preached. We pray through Christ for all that we need, especially for his kingdom and his glory. So George gave us a great example of leading us in doing that this evening. We praise God. I didn't know what I was going to say, but especially as our Redeemer, Chris was reminding us of the greatness of God in creation, but especially as our Redeemer. And so we say those things and we sing those things together. We share in the Lord's Supper, which gives us Jesus. We baptise. This is the sign of belonging to him. And so there's all sorts of ways you can do those things and all sorts of styles through history and around the world. But those basic elements, those practices of true worship, the word, prayer, praise, song, the Lord's Supper and baptism, uh, they're the basic practices of worship because they're, they're what Jesus has given us and, and more importantly, they're what gives us Jesus. And so in those, the who of Jesus and the how of Jesus come together. And so the New Testament still says to us what the Old Testament said to the people of God then, worship God acceptably. At Hebrews 12, we, Chris read us a bit of Hebrews 10, which we'll come back to in a few minutes, but Hebrews 12 at the end shows us both the difference between the Old Testament and New Testament worship and also the similarity. So the writer to the Hebrews says to the people he's reading, writing to in Hebrews 12, 22, oh no, 20, uh, where is it? Uh, 20, verse 18, rather, Hebrews 12, 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, that is burning with fire. He's talking about Sinai. You haven't come to Mount Sinai, which of course is where Moses is reminding them of in the book of Deuteronomy. When they come to Mount Sinai, it's a mountain covered with fire, showing them the holiness of God, and they can't come near but that's not us. We've come to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God in Christ. We have access to the Father through him. And so the author of the Hebrews says, let us be thankful and worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. And so there's the same principle. Know who you worship, the God of majesty and mercy, Come to him the way he's established through Jesus with thanks and reverence to him. So in this passage, Moses warns the people of the trap of false worship. He mentions four ways in which they might fall into that trap, and I think each of those are still relevant to us. The first is it might come from our own initiative. So in chapter 12, he says, well, you might you know, start to wonder about the ways of the nations that occupied the land before you and your curiosity, whether it's an individual curiosity or corporate curiosity, 
might lead you to ask, well, what did they do? And, and I guess for the people of Israel, it might have been that, that pagan ways of worship seem more tangible or, or, or perhaps more exciting or maybe more powerful. For us, it might be that we want a bit of variety, that we want a fuller experience, that listening to God's word and relying on, to him, in on him in prayer does take patience and faith. We want something more immediate. He says, don't, not, don't follow your own curiosity. At the beginning of chapter 13, it might be a teacher, it might be a false prophet or a prophet or a dreamer, someone who has prophetic dreams, and they might even seem to predict the future accurately. So they might seem to be very well credentialed, but if they say to you, let's worship other gods, don't listen to them. So the trap can come from impressive religious leaders. We need to be discerning. That's an important biblical principle. We need to check what we're being taught. It might even come, and I think this is the most difficult, the most dangerous trap and, and the most difficult one to deal with, might even come through family and friends, Moses says. Chapter 13, verse 6. Your own brother, your son or daughter, the wife you love or your closest friend might say to you, let's go and worship other gods. And perhaps you can imagine the kind of secret discussion that might happen in uh, the people of Israel. Someone will say, look, I've been worshipping Asherah. I've been praying to Baal. And you know what? My prayers are being answered. Let, let, let's go and worship them. Look, it can't hurt, can it? Maybe to keep worshipping the Lord, but worship these other gods as well. Spread your bets. Well, Moses says, don't listen to them. Even when someone close to you is excited about some new spiritual religious discovery, check, test. Or it might be a whole town, a, a kind of movement that have gone astray. And we know through history, both Israel and then the history of the church as well, there have been plenty of times when whole groups of people have left the true God in his worship. Uh, it's, it's interesting the practical warning that this chapter gives there on that issue. It says, check it out, investigate. It's easy to have rumours and gossip. It may not actually be what people are saying is happening. Check it out. But in either of those cases, whatever, wherever the enticement comes from, we, Moses says, do not tolerate false worship. Destroy the shrines and the altars and the stones and the poles and the idols and do not worship the way they worship. Then in chapter 13 is even more confronting though, isn't it? It says the false teacher must be put to death. Even family or friends who led you astray must be put to death. Now, again, there's a big difference here between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, Israel was a nation. They had laws which included physical punishment, even capital punishment, like other nations around about them. In the New Testament, the people of God are no longer a nation. We don't have a government with those kind of government, civil government powers. Church discipline is not putting people in prison or... Um, giving any physical punishment, certainly not capital punishment. In the New Testament, 
the response to false teaching, the response to people who distort our understanding of God and our worship of God is to warn them and correct them. If they won't repent, have nothing to do with them, to expel them from the church. But, but even that feels pretty shocking to us, doesn't it? We're not talking about anyone who has a different opinion on anything, but that when someone is denying the gospel of Jesus, distracting us from worshipping the true God, his way through Jesus, then it's like the false worship in Deuteronomy. It's got no place amongst the people of God. And, and the person who's promoting that, if they won't stop, should be removed from the people of God. And that is shocking in our culture, which tends to celebrate, you know, diversity of views, and we don't want to say anybody's wrong. But the church is called to worship the true God. And to leave the biblical understanding of God and how God presents himself there and the way of worshipping him through, him through Jesus is to destroy the church. And so for us, as much as Deuteronomy, God says don't tolerate false worship. Well, this passage is mainly a negative warning. Don't worship in the way of the other gods. Don't worship their gods. You shall have no other gods before me. Shall not make any images. But it's negative in order to protect a, a great positive. And do not tolerate false worship because you were made to worship the true God his way. You were called to know him and love him. Because he says, I am your God and you are my people. So worship him the way he's given you. Our great privilege is to live in his presence, to come before his throne, welcomed as his children, to live surrounded by his grace. And that is all about Jesus. So don't wander from Jesus. Don't lose sight of him. Don't replace him. Don't get bored of him. Continue to trust him. Be amazed and wonder at who he is and all he's done for you. Enjoy him. Keep focused on Jesus. He is who and how we worship. So I want to read to you as we finish the words that Chris read earlier from Hebrews 10. And I'll show you, I'm sure you'll see the, their significance. Hear God's word. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience 
and our having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Let me pray, and then I'll see if you've got any questions or comments. Father, we thank you that uh, right now, as we have been together all evening, we enter into the most holy place. Uh, as we pray to you now, we're particularly conscious that we can speak to you as I'm speaking to you, that you welcome us and hear us, uh, and that we can, be, we can be sure of your welcome. Help us, Lord, now to, as we've heard your word, to continue to hear your word. Uh, please protect us from false paths of worship but help us to keep coming back to Jesus and knowing all that he's done for us as our prophet and our priest and our king. And so we pray this in his name. Amen.